0: The title of my talk this evening is Thomism of the Body, St. John Paul II's Thomistic Anthropology of Marriage and Sexuality. Um, And that's really what I want want to show, that St. Thomas Aquinas' theology and his anthropology of the body and his theology of marriage, really, um, is the foundation of what St. John Paul II did in what we now call the theology of the body Tonight I want to do a few things then. First is to familiarize you, since I, I'm i going to just take a stab in the dark here. That I think that probably many of you are not familiar or have not read all 133 talks of the theology of the body that John Paul II gave. Um, in Catholic circles, the theology of the body has become rather popular. Um, it's mostly because it's been popularized by folks like Christopher West and what we call the Theology of the Body Institute. But not even many Catholics are familiar with it, and there's a whole lot going on in what we now call the Theology of the Body. So my, the first part of my talk is going to sort of familiarize you with the basic thrust of the themes of the theology of the body of John Paul II. If you're already familiar with it, this might be review. I might have different things to say about it than what you already know. Then once we have a handle on those major themes, I want to show you the way that those themes are, in fact, in direct continuity with the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, even if they're presented a little differently by John Paul II. Um, and so to that end, I will offer six to mystic principles that I think show convergence between the angelic doctor and the Pope's theology of the body. And then finally, and it'll be just very brief, I'm going to offer some suggestions on how Aquinas' theology can aid in the understanding of John Paul's theology of the body going forward. So to begin, we should note that what we are now calling the theology of the body was a series of what can only be described as catechetical addresses that John Paul gave publicly from either the steps of St. Peter's or from the window of the papal palace every Wednesday at noon from 1979 to 1984. Okay. Uh, John Paul really started doing that. Paul VI did it a little bit, but John Paul made it a thing. All right, so every week, he, except when he was traveling or recuperating. Uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth continued that practice, and the present Holy Father, Pope Francis, continues to do that. And they, they tend to be thematic. They go sequentially, and when the Pope feels like he's going to start a new series, if you will, he'll say that at the beginning. Today we're going to start a new series, and I'm going to be talking about the fathers of the church. And they're short, little, maybe talks for ten minutes. And with the theology of the body... What they did was that they put them together as one long book, All right, and it's been translated in two different ways. I want to get into that. It was about 133 lectures that he gave, lectures, addresses is a better word. Um, the only time he stopped in those five years was during the holy year that he declared for the Blessed Mother, Our Lady uh, Mary, and when he was recuperating from his assassination attempt. Otherwise, every Wednesday he was giving these talks on the theology of the body. They're catechetical addresses, which means that they're intended to catechize. So in these addresses, he's attempting to educate Christians, specifically Catholics. He didn't write the theology of the body to convince non-Christians or to convince non-Catholics. And so the theology of the body takes scripture as its starting point. In the theology of the body, John Paul II is not interested in making philosophical arguments for the truths that he presents, even though he considered himself primarily a philosopher. Throughout his early career, his early life, as a young man, but eventually as a priest, the man who became John Paul II, Karol Wojtyla, was increasingly concerned that Catholic theology and philosophy had become we're talking in the 1940s and 1950s, had become too abstract and too detached from the lived experience of the faithful. Um, so this is why, for one reason, you often hear Karol Wojtyla referred to philosophically as a phenomenologist. And it is true that he explored the philosophical school of phenomenology the philosophical school of thought that emphasizes human experience and and the process of human thought, but it should be said that he didn't do so uncritically. Even though he was interested in reconnecting theological and philosophical thought with human experience, or at least speaking theologically and philosophically in ways that connect to the lives of the faithful, um, he wasn't an experientialist or a relativist in that sense. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. And Christians believe that the world fundamentally makes sense, that creation makes sense, and that we can learn from it. So Christians believe also that God makes sense, that revelation, even though it is at times mysterious, can be reasonable and can be coherent. The scriptural foundation for the theology of the body is really the creation story found in the second and third chapters of Genesis. We all know the story that God creates man, he places man in the garden, and then sees that it's not good for him to be alone. And after bringing all the animals to the man, God creates uh, the woman to be his partner. So by beginning with Genesis, John Paul II is beginning, if you will, His theology of the body is theology of marriage, in fact, from a different starting point than theologians and saints, doctors of the church had begun for 500, 800, 1,000 years. He's beginning first with a scriptural reference and not, say, a philosophical one. He's beginning what the scriptures say, and we'll move from there. For John Paul II... The second chapter of Genesis, in his words, constitutes the oldest description and record of man's self-understanding, and together with the third chapter is the first witness of human consciousness. So the Genesis narrative for John Paul II, he would say it's an inspired, these are my words, not him, uh, it's an inspired account of man's self-understanding, it's how man understands himself in a primordial way. And this primordial, this primordial or primal experience of man revealed in Genesis is the experience of what John Paul II would refer to in his catechesis as original solitude. We are alone. Man stands in the world alone. And from that, through several moves, which I'm simply going to give you the conclusions to, he draws, in fact, two conclusions. First, that created man finds himself from the first moment of his existence before God in search of his own being, in search of his own definition, in search of his own identity. To this, John Paul would add that every single person, every person, believer or otherwise, is engaged in a subjective search for what he would call an objective identity. What is my identity in the world? And I'm engaged in my search for that. We're searching for what and who we are by accepting and living out an identity that, for John Paul, God has inscribed in our very existence and our very being. The second conclusion he reaches from this narrative is that self-knowledge goes hand-in-hand with knowledge of the world. The reason that Adam knows he is different is because he can see his differences from the animals that he has presented. He clearly realizes that he is not the same as them. Now, the body for John Paul II plays a significant role in this, um, in man's realization that he is alone in the world. For John Paul, it is the human body that reveals to the man that he is different. The structure of the body of the human body is different. In one specific way, is that it permits us to be the author of genuinely human activity. It is an activity that actually expresses who we are. So we do not act like animals. We are engaged and able to do work that animals cannot do. Work is very important in the thought of St. John Paul II. Work for John Paul is uh, humanizing to have labor and to be able to do work. This is precisely why Adam's first reaction, John Paul notes, upon seeing Eve is not to notice their differences. He notices first and foremost that she is like him, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, because she has a body like his. This is one of the central themes, if you're keeping count, this is one of the central themes of the theology of the body. The body expresses the person. It manifests the person to the world. And so the creation of the woman now means that mankind has two complementary ways of being embodied, two complementary ways of being human, male and female. This complementarity then has a special meaning for the body when man and woman come together in the conjugal act, the sexual act. The human body, in its male and female complementarity, has what John Paul calls a spousal attribute. He calls it the spousal meaning of the body. And when you read through the theology of the body, his catechesis, um, you or what does he mean by the spousal meaning of the body? He never really sort of seems to say, well, I mean by the spousal meaning of the body this. But taken as a whole, it seems that the spousal meaning of the body, for St. John Paul II, what he means by that phrase is that the body itself directs the person, every person, to the other in gift. That the body is geared towards another. And propels a person to make a gift of himself or herself to the other, to another. And of course then the conjugal union uh, carries within itself this particular awareness of the reciprocity of male and female and the gift of one to the other. Now I want to say that for St. John Paul II there's a deeper reason uh, that the body And therefore, the human person is directed outward to the other. Um, And it has to do with creation. Here's what John Paul II says. Genesis introduces us into the mystery of creation, that is, of the beginning of the world by the will of God, who is omnipotence and love. Consequently, every creature bears within itself the sign of the original and fundamental gift, the gift of existence. Creation is a gift. Because man appears in it as an image of God, man is able to understand the very meaning of the gift in the call from nothingness to existence. So the uniqueness of humanity is not only that we are called from nothingness into existence in a gift, since all of creation is, the uniqueness is that we can understand this gift that we can analyze it, that we can contemplate it and understand the directionality of nothingness to existence to the other. That we are called out of nothingness and ultimately toward communion with other persons and ultimately the faithful disciple that John Paul is is going to say ultimately toward communion with the persons of God, the Trinity. The body is a witness to this gift because it is also a witness to the love from which the original gift of creation springs. Men and women, through their bodies, are able to live this gift with each other in a unique and physical way. The physical differences between the sexes are ordered to procreation. That's true, and that's basically what the Catholic moral tradition has been saying from the beginning. But for John Paul, the body's meaning and value goes far beyond biological procreation to the expression of love and communion. And so the spousal meaning of the body concerns not only procreation, and it does concern that, it also concerns the communion of persons in love. In the theology of the body, uh, St. John Paul sees marriage as intended not only for biological procreation, but in fact to propagate the gift of creation, the coming into existence from nothingness, the gift of, through the gift of self, of man and woman to each other, so that new creatures, new beings, if you will, will experience this directionality from nothingness into existence from one generation to the next. And this is why He sees procreation as so important because it is a sign. And, of course, John Paul is not unique in this. It is a sign of the fruitfulness of the gift that man and woman make to each other. The shape of uh, the Pope's project in these catechesis now becomes clear. The human person, whether man or woman, created in the image of God through a gratuitous gift from that same God is unique in all of creation because the man and the woman can understand this gift. This uniqueness stems from the fact that they are free persons engaged in uniquely human activity who are called out of themselves toward a communion with another and ultimately communion with God. And so human existence, even though it's characterized by a certain existential solitude that we all feel separating us from all other creatures, is nonetheless marked by a drive towards another, towards the other. This drive to the other is manifest in the human body just as much as it is written in a person's very existence. This drive for the other, this capacity for love and self-gift, is the spousal meaning of the body, which, for Jane Paul, John Paul, uh, fulfills our existence. what so is what ultimately is fulfilling. Now, at the beginning of time in that Genesis narrative, the Pope goes on to say, man and woman, Adam and Eve, understood this. They had, the best way to describe it is they had an intuitive understanding of this. They may not have been able to articulate it, but they had an intuitive understanding of how their bodies were geared to each other and this gift from nothingness into existence and this drive to each other. They knew that they were made to be a gift to each other. But uh, original sin ruins all of that. And here John Paul stands in a long line of Catholic theologians and Catholic believers who have meditated on the consequences of original sin for our human condition. He says after original sin, the body no longer is as effective. I want to make that clear, as effective. He doesn't say it's ineffective. He says it's no longer as effective in communicating the person because sin introduces concupiscence which is an unmoderated sensual desire. You see that in Genesis when God is dishing out the sort of punishments, if you will. And he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and your desire will never be satisfied. Sin introduces concupiscence, which is a threat to the whole structure of the person because concupiscence um, threatens our self-mastery over our various appetites, sexual... Food, drink. It threatens, to use the words of John Paul II from his earlier writings, it infects our integration, how we are integrated as persons. So with sin, we experience our bodies often in revolt. You see this all throughout the New Testament in the writings of St. Paul I do not do the good I want to do, but I do the very evil I hate. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I would say, and this is just an aside, that much of our lives and sinfulness in our current condition and much of our culture really has a problem with the body. It's either too easy to overemphasize it on the one hand or underemphasize it on the other. St. John Paul II would say this is all from sin. It's not that our culture values the body, it's that it doesn't value the body enough because the body is often experienced as being in revolt from our desires and from our higher goods. We are no longer masters of our bodies. Uh, We are no longer completely free. And for John Paul II, and I would obviously argue for St. Thomas Aquinas, if we do not have the interior freedom of self-mastery, we cannot, in fact, make the gift of ourselves, because you cannot give what you do not possess, or that which you do not have mastery over. If you do not have self-possession, you cannot make a gift of yourself. It is this interior struggle that we often face with our body's impulses that can alienate us from our body. The body becomes something else than that which helps to contribute to my identity. It becomes something that is separate from my identity, separate from me. And so it's not surprising that the spousal meaning of of the body, this inherent direction of the body to the other, is now confused. After original sin, given the alienation that people often experience from their bodies, the body becomes rather a sort of um, territory for domination. I will control my body, I will work it out, I will discipline it, and I will have control over it. And so the spousal meaning of the body is no longer apparent to us intuitively. It is no longer apparent to us as a gift. And so after sin... After sin, the task of men and women, St. John Paul II says, is in fact to reconstruct the meaning of the spousal meaning of the body. It's to reconstruct their reciprocity, the gift of self. And he says this takes great effort. The inherent spousal meaning of the body is not destroyed by sin. I must be clear on this. The body can still communicate, but because of sin, Um, our communications are now distorted. And it's not just in the conjugal act, but in all of our communications. The ability to lie, the ability to put on a good face when in fact we're upset or angry or sad, the inability that we labor under to communicate honestly to one another. All of this, John Paul II says, is a result of original sin. That you can make your body, whether it's your speech or your sexuality, your sexual activity, or anything else about your body, you can make your body say something that is apparently false. We do it all the time, when we lie, for instance. And he says that's why we need Christ's redemption. In the theology of the body, as in the rest of the Christian tradition, redemption is not only about salvation, it's about redeeming the body. Salvation may work in the mind, grace may work in the mind in this life, St. Paul says, Um, but there is the resurrection of the body, and in the end, grace will overflow into the glorified body. Building off of St. Paul's observations in the fifth chapter of the letter to the Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives, and as Christ loved the church, John Paul II notes that in giving his own body and sacrifice for love of the church, his bride, Christ's redeeming love was also a spousal love. In Christ, spousal love is redeeming love and redeeming love is spousal love. They're the same. The redemption by Christ, John Paul says, in fact, recreates and renews what the created spousal meaning of the body is. Now, just to be clear, the idea that the body needs to be redeemed is in no way intended to imply that the body is evil. Evil, Far from it. Rather, redemption of the body is simply the acknowledgement that after sin, we need God's healing grace to regain freedom over our sensual cravings in order to truly make a gift of ourselves to another. So, in John Paul's view... Man must seek the meaning of his existence. This is the exact quote. Man must seek the meaning of his existence and the meaning of his humanity by reaching all the way to the mystery of creation through the reality of the redemption. There he finds also the essential answer to the question about the meaning of his body. So you can see a common theme in John Paul's entire pontificate. The grace of Jesus Christ reveals to us not only what it means to be God, Jesus Christ reveals to us also what it means to be human at its best. Redemption. I realize you might be thinking that a religious is giving you this talk, a celibate priest. So listen, let me just just clarify that right now. (laughs) Redemption culminates in the next life in which men and women will participate, and this is all in the New Testament, in the very inner life of God himself. And this exchange is a fruit of grace and a culmination of a graced life. It's, to use John Paul's words, God's self-communication in his very divinity, not only to the soul, but to the whole of man's psychosomatic subjectivity. This is why the Lord teaches in the Gospel of Luke in the 20th chapter that there is no marriage in the world to come. Thus, the spousal meaning of the body redeemed in Jesus Christ is in the end divinized into what John Paul calls the virginal meaning of the body. Because when we are united to God in heaven, we will make ourselves an absolute and complete gift to him in a way that even a married couple cannot make to each other. And he will make himself an absolute and complete gift to us. This is, by the way, where the consecrated religious and the celibate priest fits into the theology of the body. Those vowed to celibacy are signs um, and already foreshadowing In a certain sense, the virginal meaning of the body in as much as they give themselves, as much as they can in this life, in a complete gift to God. But even though the spousal meaning of the body is proceeding toward the virginal meaning through redemption in the hereafter, marriage remains the primary place that the spousal meaning of the body is lived in this life. It's in the marital act, the conjugal act, that the spousal meaning of the body is on full display for St. John Paul II. You see, it's precisely because the body has a meaning, a drive to the other, that the body also therefore speaks a language of its own. Men and women use their body to communicate with one another and the world. We use words, facial expressions, so forth, nonverbals and verbals. The body communicates. The conjugal act is an act of communication between spouses. The problem, as St. John Paul II sees it, is that because of sin, as I've said earlier, communicating with the language of the body, perhaps especially in the conjugal act, is no longer that simple. Because of sin, because we are often alienated from our bodies, we no longer communicate directly. It's difficult for us to be vulnerable. And so John Paul says couples have to reconstruct is one word he uses. The other word he uses, which might be get out his meaning better, is reread. The couples have to work to reread the language of the body, which is to say they have to work to regain what the, la- the body's language is speaking, that the, the meaning that the body wants to communicate, and then eventually to make that meaning their own in their love. All of this goes back for Voïtiwa uh, to that fact once again uh, like the great philosophical and theological Christian tradition before him that the body is an objective reality that must be respected respected even in the marital bedroom. The body is not incidental to who we are. St. Thomas is going to I think even be stronger on this point which we'll see later. When we communicate with our bodies, we are truly communicating. And individuals and spouses together can act at cross purposes to what the body is naturally trying to communicate. You can almost sometimes do it intentionally. Just to use a sort of absurd example, um, if I walk up to you and punch you in the face and say you're a great guy, that's, that's an objective miscommunication of the body, right? I mean, that's a really stupid example, but you get the point, right? That even gestures uh, can contradict our words, and our words can contradict what we think, what we're thinking. If I thought you were a great guy, I wouldn't be punching you in the face. St. John Paul says that if the human being in marriage gives to his behavior a meaning in conformity with the fundamental truth of the language of the body, then he is living in the truth. In the opposite case, he commits lies and falsifies the body and its language. So you might now be able to see where all this is going. Um, In their interactions, couples must not use their bodies, communicate with their bodies in ways that are contrary to the truth. None of us should. But the theology of the body is mostly about marriage. The truth of the consent, and this is the truth that he ultimately gets to, the truth that they should be communicating is the consent that they exchange on their wedding day, which is the truth of complete and radical self-gift. And I would say, when you talk to married couples, as I often obviously have the opportunity to do as a priest, this is the challenge of the vocation of marriage to slowly become less and less involved with yourself and more and more involved with your family and a gift to your family, to give up your dreams and your aspirations in as much as they might take you away from your family or harm your family or inconvenience for your family and to turn those over to giving yourself to your family. Right? So it's not like the self-gift of marriage, just like the self-gift of the priesthood, happens once and for all. It's constantly happening and constantly growing in the couple. It's when that stops happening that there's real problems in one spouse or another or both. And just to say this, because the theology of the body um, is in fact a, a commentary or a defense of Humanae Vitae, he ultimately is going to argue, John Paul, that when couples use contraception, they are in fact speaking a lie with their bodies because they withhold a very essential aspect of themselves, their fertility. And so Paul VI's famous line in Humanae Vitae, paragraph 16, I want to say, that the unitive and procreative dimensions of the conjugal act are inseparable is true for John Paul precisely because the unitive is communicated through the bodily procreative And the procreative is the fruit of the unitive. You can't have one without the other. You can't tell your spouse, I love you, and at the same time withhold something from her or from him, even if it's mutually agreed. Attempting to communicate the unitive without the procreative is, in fact, in John Paul's view, not unitive. It's a lie that does not respect the objective reality of the body and the structure of the human person. To my mind, this is really the point of the theology of the body. It's a commentary, a defense of humani vitae, and John Paul says as much. In 133 catechetical addresses, John Paul is arguing that the body communicates in a way that is not arbitrary, but that is dependent on objective reality. The objective structures of creation cannot be sacrificed. In favor of the experiential, the psychological, or what we might call the subjective experience of being human. So while John Paul has been concerned to incorporate human experience in theology and philosophy, he hasn't jettisoned it. Um, this is why he's not a relativist. However, in the theology body, he never really—and I must and this is why Saint Thomas is so important for the theology of the body. In the theology of the body, and if you ever have a chance to read through it all, you'll see that he never actually goes into the objective or ontological structures of the human person. And this is precisely because it wasn't his project. He says as much from the beginning. He's not interested in these catechesis of exploring philosophical truths. He wants to provide a biblical anthropology that could, in the end, not only support but defend the church's understanding of marriage and sexuality that could enrich it. He was basically doing that throughout the 1970s after Humanae Vitae came out. In fact, we now know that The Theology of the Body was intended to be a book that he was ready to publish just on the eve of his election to the pontificate. And so that's why when you read it, the original translation, which was not good, um, it seems very disjointed because essentially he was just cut and pasting from his manuscript sections as he went. All right. Now, my contention is that St. Thomas Aquinas had a lot of this stuff figured out way back in the 13th century. This may not surprise you, I am a Dominican. Okay. Now it's true that in the thirteenth century people didn't speak about the matters of marriage as much as they did in the twentieth century. If you if I can put in a shameless plug for my book, it's in the second chapter of the book, I believe, where I go through the early history of the twentieth century and how the vocation of marriage was sort of rediscovered mostly by the Catholic lay faithful in the early twentieth century. Not to say what didn't exist before then, but that it was that it could truly be a path to holiness was let's say not of primary concern to most Catholics for about 500 years, 600 years, maybe longer. That comes back into focus in the early 20th century, long before contraception debates. That was already going on, okay. Um, So it's true that in the 13th century, century, you're not gonna get people talking about the matters of marriage as much as people are now or in the 20th century. And uh, you'll find no treatise on sexuality and the human person in the Summa Theologiae. Uh, but he has many of the principles down. And Wojtyla knew that. Wojtyla was a Thomist. Um, I'm going to assert that. He, he was principally an artist, a poet, and considered himself later a philosopher. But in his young youth, he considered himself an artist, an actor, a writer, and a poet. While he was studying in the underground seminary during uh, the communist occupation of Poland, working at a rock quarry, the workers would let him go off in the corner and hide him so he could read his philosophy books. And one of the early books he was reading was Eric Pizarra's uh, Being and Essence, I believe, which is heavily Thomistic metaphysics. And after he became pope, he gave an interview to a friend from Poland. And it's, it's just in a footnote in the interview. Uh, where he says that he would be in tears reading this book because he couldn't understand the word of it. And I mean, it just didn't match his experience of, of life. And then he, he, he doesn't say what happened. He got to one chapter, but, he said, but then all of a sudden it made sense. And he, the way he describes it, he said, it's like I came into a clearing and all of a sudden I realized that this explained my life and it could explain all of reality, you know. And when you go, through, but even before he's pope, I mean, he, when he studies, his first doctoral his doctoral dissertation is comparing uh, the theology of John of the Cross to Thomas Aquinas on love. You know, um, he he talks a lot about Thomas. He was teaching Thomas when he was teaching at the University of Lublin and later in Krakow. And it goes on and on throughout, throughout his pontificate. It's difficult when they become pope uh, because it's never quite clear what they write and what other people have written that has their name on it. You know, so uh, you have, But he, he clearly was a Thomist. And I, at the end of my talk, I'll point out one other fascinating aspect of that. Um, he taught... Thomas straight from the Summa, which is how Dominicans in those days would teach Thomas. They'd open the Summa, please turn to the first part, question you know, 38, article 4, and the, you know, this is how Voitia would teach in his lectures. So he was doing what Dominicans would do in reading St. Thomas. Um, it wasn't until, in fact, the birth control debate in the 1960s and 1970s that he began to see, as many people did, that presenting the same natural law arguments against most especially the pill. The pill is really what sort of broke a lot of the arguments. Okay? Um, condoms and diaphragms, all of that, uh, th- they work a little bit. Th- the pill was harder to make an argument for. And I'd be happy to talk about that during the Q&A, if you like. But um, he was realizing that the same natural arguments uh, was not, were not connecting with people. They weren't working. But that all being said, I would say, and so the theology of the body is in some ways a response to that experience. The theology of the body presumes many of the conclusions that Aquinas had already reached, even though St. John Paul II doesn't talk about them or mention them. In fact, a number of times in the theology of the body, um, he explicitly says this is not his intention. He's focusing on the subjective side of the human person and the human body. And so Now I want to suggest to you six aspects of Aquinas' teaching that not only support the theology of the body um, and this notion especially of the spousal meaning of the body, but can also provide a deeper metaphysical and theological foundation for what John Paul was able to do in his catechesis. And At the end, I'll explain why I think that's important. I want to say, too, if you've read St. Thomas, if you've read Aristotle, some of this may seem very basic. Um, These are very basic Thomistic principles, but they're now largely forgotten in the current discussions on marriage and theology. And they have been forgotten by those who have popularized the theology of the body, which is really the only way people are being exposed to it. But make no mistake, he knew these principles even if contemporary commentators on his theology of the body don't. So the first principle... An appetite for perfection. For St. Thomas, uh, he had a strong sense that every creature, every created being has an appetite for perfection. In his metaphysics, in his philosophy, perfection is synonymous with goodness and truth and actualizing the being's fullest potentials. That's what it means to be perfect. Whether it's an electron uh, rotating around protons and neutrons, whether it's geese flying south, trees growing towards the sun, Um, you and I achieving our highest capacities, that's perfection. Whatever it is that's part of that being's highest definition, if you will, that's its perfection. All created being, whether man, woman, dog, tree, rock, everything else, He, in a certain sense, and this is my word, uh, wants, in as much as we could speak of a rock wanting anything, all created being wants to be fully actualized, wants to be fully perfect. Trees want to be actualized by growing towards the sun. Geese want to be actualized by flying south for the winter. As a believer, St. Thomas would say that this appetite is implanted, if you will, in every creature, whether electron or angel or human being, by God. And so that all of creation is yearning for actualization in the supreme good, who is God himself. And this actualization, and this is, I could, we could do a whole semester just on this, or at least a couple weeks of a semester. This actualization always, always requires something else or somebody else, always requires some other agent than the cre- creature itself. We do not actualize or perfect ourselves. This is true whether that other agent is the supreme good, who is God himself, or other created agents who are good in some respects, actualized in certain respects, and therefore can help actualize us and others. The human person, who is a composite of body and soul, which I will get to, that's another principle, is actualized and therefore perfect in some respects and imperfect in others. We are not, none of us, completely perfect. None of us has actualized our fullest potentials. And we need others, other persons and other things and other activities to bring our perfections, our capacities to act to perfection to actualize them in ways that we have not yet been actualized. I mean, even learning. I mean, for St. Thomas to say that learning the truth is um, an ends to, or means to an end, uh, he would dismiss that with absolute prejudice. I mean, he would say that every human person is built to learn and to know, and that you're always learning, you're always learning new things, whether that's learning from a book, whether it's learning a new insight, whether it's learning how to get from this room to the cafeteria so you can have dinner, you're always learning something. You know, I mean learning is is part of our perfection. Every person for St. Thomas finds perfection and fulfillment of himself or herself outside of himself in study, in work and in relationship. And so it turns out that cheesy line of Jerry Maguire is somewhat right. You complete me. Now, get this. For St. Thomas, love, in the most primal sense, love, uh, is that drive. It's the movement towards perfection. It's this appetite for that which is perfecting, and he would say connatural, which suits our nature, which is to say it's in accord with us, it perfects us. And he talks about it in a certain sense as being present in rocks and in animals and in plants. Rocks love being on the ground. That's their perfection. If I, if I let go of a rock, it's going to get to where it wants to be. Gravity, of course, but that's what rocks want. That's, what they, that's where they love to be. They love to be on the ground, not suspended in midair. But what separates these natural loves, whether it's the love of rocks or the love of animals, from human love is precisely, and this should harken back to St. John Paul II, is precisely that men and women can know and understand and can choose where we will find our perfection. That's the great gift of free will. That's the great gift of freedom, is that we have a choice in what we love and where we will find our perfection. And we can make mistakes in that, obviously. We can screw that up badly, but that's freedom. Um, For what what it's worth, Uh, ours is a chosen love. So, in Saint Thomas's Latin, uh, the love he uses he uses a unique English, a Latin word for love, dilectio, for human love, dilectio, which is of choice. It's a love of choice. So Thomas would agree. Uh, with John Paul II, that all creation is called out of nothingness, but that man has a unique role in all of this precisely because of his understanding and his power to choose. His pow- that's what makes him in the image of God. Uh, virtue is learning to love rightly for St. Thomas. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. The second Thomistic principle is uh, hylomorphism. This is the second relative characteristic uh, is Aquinas' strict hylomorphism, the theory that the body and soul are so united, so intertwined, if you you will, uh, that they are, in a sense, even saying it this way makes it worse, uh, codependent. Uh, But the problem is, with our language, because we live in a post-Cartesian world, we don't even have good language for this. For St. Thomas, the soul and the body are not things on their own. You should never consider them things. That's a Cartesian mentality, that somehow the soul is a thing that is within my body. No. For St. Thomas, they're principles. They're principles that comprise you. And that's why he says the human person is a composite of body and soul. So it's completely wrong to think uh, that St. John Paul II, which I often hear, which as a Dominican drives me crazy, was the first to emphasize the importance of the body. He wasn't. Uh, The the theology of the body isn't radically new in this sense. Aquinas had already realized that the two principles, body and soul, are inextricably linked in the human person's activity. The body is the material in us, the the rational soul is the formal in us, it's what makes us human, and what makes our body a human body. The body we share with animals, but the soul is what makes us distinctively human. It's our higher side. But here's the thing: in St. Thomas's anthropology and his epistemology, uh, the soul cannot learn or function without the body, and the body cannot be the body without the soul. We're not angels, right? We're embodied spirits, and and Aquinas was insistent upon this fact throughout his life and in his work. Um, He holds, yes, that there is an immaterial element to human thought that cannot be explained by bodily organs and chemistry. Uh, Thought is uh, abstract thought is the work of the soul. If he were alive today, he might point to the fact that neuroscience has yet to be able to explain how people come up with such big ideas like concepts of freedom and love and truth and what that is. is it? Um, and he'll say, sure, you can get a scan that will show all certain parts of the brain uh, light up when we're thinking about certain things or remembering other things, but abstract thought, the pursuit of truth, is not yet explained. Being, and St. Thomas would say that's because it's an immaterial component. And yet, and yet, he would not deny that the brain, even though he would not have known it as well as we do, I mean as much as we do, uh, he would not deny that the material part of us has a role in our abstract thought. For St. Thomas, following, of course, Aristotle, it is impossible to know anything or even to think abstractly without the use of mental imagery. Even when you're thinking of non-linear or non-visual things like truth and freedom, your mind has an image in it whether it's an American flag whether it's you know the statue of Iwo Jima, whatever it is it's impossible as a human person to have a blank mind all right that's one of the reasons catholicism is always opposed to any sort of prayer or mere meditation technique that suggests that you can get a blank mind. You can't. If someone tells you to clear your mind, what do you do? You think of a blank wall, you think of a, a brick wall, you know, that's still an image. It's not a blank mind, I'm sorry. So St. Thomas would insist that the body's part of that. Memory and imagination are part of the body, not a part of the soul. Uh, so I imagine St. Thomas, if he were alive today, he would be, say, of course we can now scan the brain and see things light up when we're imagining and remembering. That's because that's part of the body, not a part of abstract thought. He is so consistent that the human person is a composite of body and soul that he argues that after death, this is not dogma, it's a theological opinion. I always feel like I need to clarify that. Uh, He argues that after death, when our soul separates from our body and is God willing, united to God in the beatific vision, we are still in some sense lacking something because our soul is lacking the body for which it was made, and the body is lacking the soul. Now, he says, no, of course, this deficit is made up for by the fact that you are united to God, absolutely, and in the beatific vision. But that it's only with the resurrection of the dead, when your your soul is united to a glorified body, that you once again become a complete and whole human person for him. You see, that's the key. Our souls are such that they need the body, The body is not incidental. This is exactly what distinguishes our personhood from the personhood of God, the three persons of the Trinity, and the personhood of the angels. We are embodied. The third Thomistic principle, rational love. As I said earlier, human love is distinguished from those natural drives to perfection, those natural loves of rocks and animals, precisely because we can choose. But we are composite creatures, so we have that animal side in us. So an authentic and distinctively human love requires that we have our passions, our emotions, our sensual desires in order, which is to say our animal side, our bodily side, must be subordinate uh, to that which is distinctively human, our reason. And Aquinas, along with John Paul II and the classical Christian tradition, insist that this is an inherently difficult task after original sin, in which the harmony of body and soul are now out of whack. By definition, remember, love for Aquinas um, is that drive for perfection. That drive out of oneself to the good. And married men and women find some perfection, one hopes, why they're getting married, in each other. That's why what you ask an engaged couple, why do you get married? And they have all sorts of answers, but they all boil down to, I need him, or I need her, she completes me, she, he completes me. All of this, love is a choice guided by reason and guided by truth. Now, I know this, um, I think this is kind of counterintuitive to our culture. You know, oh, don't overthink love, they say, can't always be reasonable. It's a standard cliche movie in Hollywood, and the uptight, over obsessive businessman meets the free spirited woman who pushes all of his buttons, and he lives happily ever after by running away with her, and she teaches him that love is irrational, right? Um, but it doesn't really work that way in real life. I mean, that's just Hollywood. How many people do you know who are in relationships that seem completely wrong for them, but you can't convince them because they're caught up in the passion of the thing? We all have seen people get into that. St. Thomas and the classical Christian tradition along with him is not, on the other hand, trying to snuff out passion. St. Thomas is not a Stoic. Christians cannot be Stoics. On the contrary, it's only for St. Thomas when our passions and our emotions are directed to reason, uh, directed to the highest part of ourselves, that they become catalysts to us being truly good persons, to being virtuous persons. And St. Thomas says the virtuous person actually feels more deeply than anybody else because the virtuous person doesn't fear his emotions or her emotions, doesn't fear that she'll be carried off by them or he'll, be, he'll do something he'll regret. The virtuous person, therefore, is liberated to feel more deeply and more profoundly. What, what he is against is allowing the desires of our animal side, our material side, our carnal cravings to overrule what is distinctively human in us. When I taught undergraduates at Providence College, I always liked to share with them his uh, question in the Summa, whether drunkenness is a mortal sin. And he says, in that, he says in the answer, if you accidentally get drunk, it's not a mortal sin. But if you intend to get drunk, it's a mortal sin because you're intending to give up your reason for the sake of something else, and you're giving up the highest part of yourself when you intend to get drunk. He mentions uh, how in the Middle Ages, I mean, he says often people would drink things they had no idea how strong the, liquor, the alcohol was. I mean, it wasn't like labels, 80 proof, 50 proof, you know, in the Middle Ages. I've got stories about that, about Dominicans recreating such scenes, but, uh, you know, you open the jar of somebody's handmade liquor and smoke starts coming out, and put that one back, you know. <laughs> St. Thomas, I don't know. Uh, Yes. Uh, So uh, the lower side has to be directed to the higher side. And in many ways, when we sin, it's precisely because we're directing ourselves more to the lower side than to the higher. Um, That's also why, by the way, and I should just say this very casually, I don't want to get too much into it, but I'll have to go into it later. This is why the medievals were generally suspicious of the sexual act because the passion of the sexual act is so great that it does and can, in fact, overrule reason at its its climax, at its height. And so there were a lot of medievals, and even church fathers in the first millennium who were against it for that very reason. St. Thomas is not. He's got got fascinating things why that's not a problem. Um, And we can go into that later, but it's a lot of fascinating things there. Uh, the, the, the person who habitually chooses to, um, to make choices that are guided by reason, he separates herself from the animals because her choices are not based merely on craving or on instinct. They're based on truth and goodness, even if she's wrong. So it's, we're talking about pursuing truth and goodness as a reality with the recognition that I can be wrong about what is true and what's good. That's not a sin. That's just mistake. All right, That's uh, ignorance or whatever. Such a person is typically a virtuous person. John Paul would call that person a self-possessed person, an integrated person. And so a virtuous person loves rightly because the virtuous person is temperate and is able then to love authentically for human reasons. The fourth principle, the equality of men and women. Even though St. Thomas's strict hylomorphism and his indebtedness to Aristotelian biology forced him to assert the superiority of the male sex over the female sex in a qualified sense, and, I, and I'd be happy to answer that in the Q&A, his settled position on marriage is that it is a conjugal relationship, and here's an important point, which he calls the highest form of friendship amicitia maxima in Latin. In spite of their sexual differences, uh, even though he argued that the husband was head of the family, as did everyone in those days, he also argues that there is a certain equality, a true equality, between husband and wife because it's an equality for him because equality is necessary for true friendship. There can be no friendship without equality between the friends. And so uh, he doesn't use this word, but I do. There's a way when you read St. Thomas and everything that he says about the marital home uh, that a sort of domestic justice uh, is present between husband and wife. Friendship exists only between equals. It entails a common endeavor and an attempt to make each other better persons. I mean, he's following Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics Book 8 here. I will say, too, just to throw this out, that 20th century feminist Catholic theologians, one of the most especially Elisa So Cahill, have all recognized that St. Thomas was ahead of his time uh, in, this, in this movement of the, recognizing the equality of men and women in the marital home. True friendship for Aquinas following Aristotle wants the good not only for oneself but for one's friend. So much is this the case that you begin to see what is good for your friend as, in fact, good for yourself. Your friend's good becomes your good. Your friend's good, what makes your friend happier and better, comes to make you better and happier precisely because your friend is happier. But friendship is based, uh, a friendship that is based only on utility, Uh, going back to Aristotle, what friends give to each other ceases once those Utilitarian needs are no longer filled, or no longer able to be filled. That's not true friendship for Saint, for Aristotle or Saint Thomas. How many relationships end, not just friendships, but even sexual relationships and loving relationships, when there's a sense by one of the friends that they're not getting from the other what they should be getting, right? In his writings, Aquinas provides also detailed arguments why monogamy and indissolubility are necessary aspects of marriage, in fact, in order to protect the equality of the spouses. Keep in mind that in his day, women were generally without public means. I mean, the reason a man should not have multiple wives is because he can't have maximum friendship with any one of them, and that would set them against each other, you know, vis-a-vis him. The reason why there should be indisibi- indissolubility—at least early on—he changes his thought. He develops this, and over the course of his ta- his life, uh, but certainly early on, it's precisely because of he sees the good of his, the man sees the good of his spouse, of his wife, and knows uh, that her good is to flourish and to and that and certainly in his milieu, this would not have happened uh, if she were divorced. He believes that living marriage in any other way, for instance, um, he's also against slave owners marrying slaves because there's no inherent equality. So even if the slave owner frees the slave, there's a history of inequality that would be carry over into the marriage. So he's a he, he. There cannot be any inequality carried over into the marriage because the spouses are absolutely equal in his, sense, in his mind. He's categorically against any such arrangement in which wives would, would be reduced to a position of inequality and servility to their husbands. The fifth Thomistic Principle. In St. Thomas's view, the husband and wife give to each other a certain we use the word authority, it's not the best word, Uh, certain authority over their bodies uh, to each other in in the exchange of mutual consent. This gift, which is our term, is traditionally called in Catholic theology the marital debt, uh, which I realize is somewhat of an archaic term and seems somewhat commercial. But it's what each spouse gives to the other of themselves. This means in traditional terms, that each spouse can request the conjugal act from the other. You belong to me and I belong to you. To pay the debt, so to speak. Um, Now although St. Thomas intimates that there are differences, this is some fun things that he says, uh, there are differences between how the husband and wife might request the debt to be paid, because they're different, men and women are different. So these differences, and he says, owes to the fact that they're different, uh, the different ways men approach sex and the different ways women approach sex, the different ways men communicate and the different ways women communicate. Now, although this language may seem dated, it does show us that St. Thomas had some understanding that the husband and wife were equally indebted to each other, body and I would say soul, even if he doesn't use language like self-gift, which is much more uh, a much more contemporary way of speaking. But also shows us that he wanted to protect the couple from lust and the possibility of objectifying each other sexually. It is possible to lust after one's spouse. It is possible to objectify one's spouse simply as an object of satisfaction for my sexual needs. In fact, St. Thomas provides several parameters, not rules, parameters for asking. For this debt to prevent the spouses from lusting after each other, although I will tell you he only mentions the possibility of a husband lusting after his wife, not the other way around. Presumably, he would presume wives could lust after their husbands. Now, he doesn't get too detailed. He leaves a lot to prudence, and he leaves a lot to the couple to discern in their relationship. But the whole point, to use somewhat contemporary language, is to protect the bodies of each from being used and objectified, even as the man and the woman have given their bodies to each other. Um, in, that, in that section of his writing, and this, if most of this is in various responses in the Summa, uh, the, he, uh, and in the Summa Contra Gentiles, he talks about men being sensitive to the needs of their wives, for instance. So obviously, I think he, I think he for example, explicitly mentions... Not calling in for the debt to be paid. That's my language, not his. Not asking for the debt. Um, like, if, if the spouse is sick, for instance. I mean, these are obvious things that any married couple would know, but 13th century celibate monk, you know, a friar. Thomistic principle number six, the formal element of marriage. Finally, uh, toward the end of his life, St. Thomas wrote that the formal element of marriage is the inseparable union of souls. He wrote this in the Summa Contra Gentiles. He quit writing before he could finish the Summa Theologiae, so there's no treatise on marriage in the Summa Theologiae. What you can pick up on marriage in the Summa Theologiae, you're picking up from other treatises in there. Some recent scholarship has begun to focus on this statement of Aquinas, this idea uh, that marriage is, a, is the inseparable union of souls and how it relates to contemporary debates on the personal or unitive dimension of marriage. While Aquinas and scholasticism generally can sometimes be accused of being overly naturalistic or physicalist, in its emphasis on the primar- primacy of procreation, that's a charge I would deny, by the way, that it's physicalist, uh, the fact that Aquinas understood marriage... To consist in the inseparable unions of souls is highly significant. Just as the human person is a composite of body and soul in which what is formal, the soul, must be united to what is material, the body, and just as the body and soul cannot be separated in this life, so neither can the formal and the material elements of marriage be separated. The formal element of marriage, the union of souls, cannot be separated from the material element of marriage, which is not only the union of the body, the procreative and the unitive, it is also the other ends of marriage that we understand. The mutual help of the spouses, and of course the remedy of concupiscence, the sexual act, the marital debt. Nor can they uh, be separated from the long-term because they are inseparable from what those, those ends and those goals and those material elements are, which is to say, raising of the children. The bond of husband and wife um, provides the foundation for care of the children. St. Thomas has a lot to say about that too. So in marriage, just as the human person sorry, so, so in marriage, just as in the human person, the body is the point of contact for the soul it might be argued the conjugal act is the point of contact for the union of souls. The two cannot be separated. So insisting that marriage is formally the union of souls makes marriage a distinctively human endeavor by these unique creatures who are embodied souls. Now, did St. Thomas uh, make all of those connections? Not all of them. That's what we do. The concept of the unitive and procreative is a 20th century concept, but the principles are already there in St. Thomas's work. Now, to conclude cl- my time with you this evening, what does all this mean for the theology of the body? Well, as I said earlier, John Paul purposely did not intend to do everything in the theology of the body. It's not intended to be his great opus magnum. He never referred to it that way. And so when you see popularizers, I don't mean that pejoratively, uh, <laughs> When you see popularizers claim that it is, uh, that's wrong. He never himself claimed that. As I said, we know it was intended to be a book that he was going to publish in 1979. It was the, la- it was the latest in a long series of articles and talks he had given throughout the 70s to defend Humanae Vitae and to give a reasonable explanation of the theology to support the encyclical. So I think it is a mistake, contrary to some view, some who view it this way. I think it's a mistake to view the theology of the body or to interpret it as something radically new. It's more like a rediscovery, is what I would say. Um, even if some of those themes had been covered over the intervening centuries, a quick perusal of the footnotes of the theology of the body show that John Paul himself was relying on the great tradition of Christianity. I mean virtually every talk has 15 to 20 footnotes laden with citations of church fathers and saints and theologians that preceded him. So, uh, bringing St. Thomas back into the conversation of marriage and the body is important, I think, for three reasons. First, uh, the theology of the body is just that. It's a theology. It's not intended to convince Christians of the veracity of humani vitae or our view of marriage and love. Aquinas was also a theologian, but I do think a lot of his principles can speak uh, to uh, the realities and the truths that even non-believers can know and experience. Second, um, I think most people do not read the Theology of the Body catechesis themselves. I've been saying this all night. They tend to read commentators on the Theology of the Body. They read popular writers uh, inevitably when they do eventually read the Theology of the Body of Catechesis and any of you who have read Carol Wojtyla's work or John Paul II's work know that it's dense he's not an easy read okay? he's very dense I mean, sometimes I think about being in St. Peter's Square when he's delivering these 15 I'm like, could they even understand what he was talking, you know, last week I spoke about you know, the existential nature, I mean this he's talking to the masses, so he, he, he's dense. His writing is dense. And popular writers, as you know, being the scholars that you are, popular writers tend to make leaps and to boil things down for the average reader. And so therefore, most people are content to receive the theology of the body through secondary sources. And many of those sources are not themselves familiar with Aquinas, or even, I, I, I must say, even Voitiva's own background, how he was formed. They're just reading the theology of the body. I think Aquinas answers more questions on marriage and sexuality, which are beyond the limits of the scope of the project of the theology of the body. One thing people are often surprised to learn, in the theology of the body, John Paul II, over five years, 133 catechesis, never once mentions children. He talks about procreation, but he never once mentions the role of children in that family. It just wasn't his project. His project was to talk about man and woman together, and procreation proceeding from that. Finally, Um, I think John Paul would have welcomed the thought of Aquinas into the discussion. As I've already said, he did not intend to get rid of philosophy, metaphysics, ontology, in favor of some experiential biblical anthropology. He always considered himself a philosopher, but he was always devoted to the thought of Aquinas. He taught Aquinas, he studied Aquinas. Throughout his pontifical writings, Aquinas is there, Veritat Splendor, Fides et Horatio. Um, He insisted St. John Paul II did, that a proper philosophical and metaphysical understanding of the human person is always necessary, and St. Thomas provides that. And so it's not surprising, and this is where I will conclude my talk this evening, and thank you for your patience, it's not surprising then that in his last published work, his memoir, his third and final memoir, uh, Memory and Identity, Pope John Paul insisted the following... If we wish to speak rationally about good and evil, we have to return to St. Thomas Aquinas, that is, to the philosophy of being. With the phenomenological method, for example, we can study experiences of morality, religion, or simply what it is to be human and draw from them a significant enrichment of our knowledge. Yet we must not forget that all these analyses implicitly presuppose the reality of the absolute being, capitalized, and also the reality of being human, that is, being a creature. If we do not set out from such realist presuppositions, we will end up in a vacuum. Whenever you're, I'm arguing about John Paul to other scholars and in sort of academic circles, they will always insist to in me, well, he never explicitly says this, or "No." Ne- but see, here's what you have. He always insists that implicitly a realist a realistic presuppositions of metaphysics and ontology grounded in Aquinas is what he's operating from. He doesn't feel the need. And if you've ever listened to Thomas talk for long, he doesn't feel the need to constantly reinvent the wheel of what St. Thomas had already concluded. Thank you very much.